0: addiction is a form of self-regulation why is this so easy for us to change our brain because it feels good neuroplasticity is absolutely feasible for echolocation and becoming a bad but it's harder this is easier because it's self-regulation and we have to self-regulate is a key piece of us continuing to survive
1: we're lane and Sherris two certified clinicians who are obsessed with neuroscience and learning all the secrets behind the power of our brains. This podcast is focused on using science to understand the parts of us that are unknown but impact us
0: every day. Our brains affect the way we think, feel, act, and even understand the world. But what we don't realize is that so much of it is happening on autopilot. By learning more about how our brains work, We can use that knowledge to regain control of our minds and become happier, healthier people while positively impacting others. This is the Brain Blown Podcast.
1: On the podcast, we are talking about addiction, and our focus for this episode will be more of the chemical dependency. Though if you think about it, the word addiction has been thrown around, especially a lot over the past few decades. as Phones have entered the world, as social media has entered the world. There's a lot of things that we can claim to be addicted to, but what does it really mean to be addicted? Is it a feeling that we crave, or is it more of an escape from something else? What keeps someone addicted, and why are addictions so hard
0: to break? That isn't an easy question. However, it is something we can answer. So to answer it, this is the neuroscience of addiction.
1: So we've covered a lot of mental health disorders this season.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Coming on to chemical dependency, people may not necessarily think of this as a disorder, but I feel like the way our brains and our lives and other people are affected by it could have some similar things Mm -hmm. and so I imagine our flow of this episode will be very similar to what we've done this season and as we start things off we'll of course be looking at the colloquial definition or experience of chemical dependency Mm -hmm. or even more so just addiction in general Mm -hmm. and then we will look at the clinical diagnosis of it so starting things off, just sort of generally, what are we speaking to or what are we thinking about when we talk about addiction?
0: Well, first we're often talk about how common this is. Yeah. And this is not an easy thing to define in terms of commonality, because it's easy to get a number of usage, but what we want to focus on here is not just usage of something, but being addicted to it. Mm. So National Center for Drug Abuse states that over 28 million individuals or 20.4% of Americans 12 and older have an alcohol use disorder. We're going to let that settle for just a minute and clarify that is over
1: a fourth of all Americans over the age of 12. Yeah. That's not even drinking limit.
0: Yeah. Whoa. They state that over 37 million were current illegal drug users as in used within the last 30 days as of 2020. And 25% of illegal drug users have a drug disorder. So even more people are using illegal drugs. Over 70,000 drug overdoses occur in the U.S. annually. The number of overdose deaths increased at an annual rate of 4%, and the average life expectancy in the United States actually declined between 2015 and 2017 because of overdoses. And it hasn't gotten much better since. Addiction Center states that almost 21 million Americans have at least one addiction, yet only 10% receive treatments drug overdose deaths have tripled since 1990 alcohol and drug addiction cost the u.s economy over 600 billion every year and about 20 percent of americans who have depression or anxiety also have some sort of substance disorder this is clearly an issue this is the most prevalent one we've covered since the start of season two
1: yeah clearly my goodness
0: So what are we talking about with all those heavy numbers? Sure. I I think colloquially we use this a lot. This can be everything to being a drunk, to your friend who just never seems to be sober. I've heard functioning alcoholic a lot. To what we see on the street corner. This can feel very close to home and very distant at the exact same time. But addiction has almost a casualness to it I'm going to hypothesize likely due to the commonality of it. So what we're talking about clinically is different. And although it may not be common to think about this as a mental health diagnosis, this is actually a huge section of the DSM-5. No way! Yeah, it's about this. (laughs) Sorry. Uh... (laughs) Right. We don't do this on visual. Call it a fifth of the book. In the DSM, it goes from page 477 to 591. Okay, that's large. Yeah. That's That's a big pinch of a big book. It's one of the largest sections in the book. Wow. So when we look at it clinically, one of the reasons that's so big is that in the DSM-5, we're looking at what we call substance-related and addictive disorders. That's the category. Okay. Much like last month when we covered in the entire paraphilic category, this is an entire category. And the DSM-5 breaks substance down into 10 different classes, inhalants, opiates, sedatives, hypnotics anxiolytics, i.e. tranquilizers, stimulants, tobacco, and other, but state all drugs taken in excess can, quote, intense activation of the reward system that normal activities may be neglected. The DSM also has a diagnosis for gambling disorder because it states there is, quote, reflecting evidence that gambling behaviors activate reward systems similar to those activated by drugs of abuse and produce some behavioral symptoms that appear comparable to those produced by substance use disorders, internet gaming and behavioral actions that includes sex addiction are not currently listed, not because they may not be addictive, and not because they may not be activating the same areas of the brain, but more because the DSM is stating we don't have enough longitudinal data yet to know. Remember, the DSM was written over 10 years ago? So that comes into play, Right. and I will say Even though the DSM 5 doesn't say it, neuroscience would like to counter that, right? More on that soon. But talking about what we're looking at clinically, the DSM is doing this by each category, looking at the disorder. And what they're really looking at is specifically does this cause clinically significant distress? We've discussed this a lot this particular season. That's in the DSM 5 all the time. I will say, as much as you and I have specifically talked about how how open that is to interpretation, with substance abuse, the DSM is trying to label out what chemical addiction might look like if it's causing clinically significant distress. They'll also look at intoxication, and they'll look at withdrawal. Generally, those read very similarly. Gambling, however, only looking at the disorder, gotcha. i.e., is there clinically significant distress? A simplified way I've heard this used in conversations with clinicians is Clinicians will often see if addiction is present by trying to figure out if it's in the driver's seat. And that isn't always easy to suss out, but trying to differentiate between doing an activity and being addicted to an activity is not easy. We use the DSM the best way that we can, and we're also trying to figure out who seems to be in control here. Right. So there is also a huge part of the DSM that does look at what we call comorbidity, and that means a diagnosis that's present at the same time. And what is starting to be looked at Though not historically looked at, is looking at what might be causing the addiction as opposed to just trying to treat the addiction alone. We don't have a great track record in treating the addiction alone. We're starting to look at this very differently. And this is where neuroscience can come into play. I cannot wait to hear about it. Absolutely.
1: And hearing all of that, too, it makes a little bit more sense because. In my mind, the reason that addiction maybe didn't feel like a mental health disorder in a way is because the other ones that we've talked about have been such internal processes, like Mm. depression, anxiety, even ADHD. Yes, there are outward symptoms of it, but you just naturally think of it as, oh, that's something going on in their head. That's Mm -hmm. something going on internally. But with addiction, it's almost like what you're seeing is the outward action of it Mm -hmm. and you it's easier to think oh that's just actions that they're taking over and over they can stop it
0: no problem they can stop whenever they want which really gets us into the history because that's what made this so hard to think of as a mental health diagnosis (gasps) tell us more about that so in looking at how far this goes back right does this go back to caveman times it is really difficult to say because we know the usage of mind-altering substances goes back a really, really long time, but being able to show addiction to something and dependency of something, that's much harder to suss out, right? We do actually have proof of a frozen body found with mind-altering substances in a pouch that was being carried, and that body dates back to 3300 BC. That's, whoa,
1: whoa, that's the oldest number I think we've ever discussed on this podcast. That is, is that literal caveman time? No,
0: caveman time is 10,000 BC. Oh, okay. Wow. So pretty close, but also not at all. Yeah. Gotcha. (laughs) (laughs) And it's hard to say if those mind-altering substances were anything of an addiction, right? That could be very different as substances had been used historically for religious purposes, medical purposes. We used to use cocaine as a medication, Mm. recreational purposes, without any of that addiction, right? Right. So... We can say this is how far back the usage goes, not how far back the addiction goes. Aristotle did document the effects of alcohol withdrawal, and Celsius stated the dependency of alcohol was a disease. So again, we're in that Greek era that we've been discussing a lot since that's when we seem to really be starting to write down some of this. Mm -hmm. Um, The American Medical Association, however, did not classify this as a disease until 1956 and did not recognize addiction until 1987. Additionally, it has historically been seen as a choice or a behavioral problem up until 2011. Oh, (laughs) Oh
1: my gosh. I forgot that when I'm in absolute shock, people can't hear that. (laughs) So uh, that noise was proof of my absolute jaw-to-the-floor shock. Yeah. 2011.
0: Yeah, you're right. We don't think about this as a mental health diagnosis. We see the externalization of it. We think of it as a behavioral and something somebody is choosing to do up until 2011, basically. Wow.
1: Well, giving the track record of our episodes this season, oftentimes when we're looking at to why neuroscience, it's normally because what we've learned in mental health in the mental health field so far hasn't covered enough or hasn't done a very good job
0: you're not wrong oh boy so what
1: are we looking at exactly for from the basis of neuroscience neuroscience yeah when it comes to
0: addiction i feel like why neuroscience this season could be lumped into because mental health isn't working (laughs) right right (laughs) and that's really what's going on here All kub and cable quote substance and alcohol use disorders impose large health and economic burdens on individual families, community, and society. Neither prevention nor treatment efforts are effective in all individuals. Results are often modest. Understanding both the drivers and the consequences of substance use in vulnerable populations, including those whose brains are still maturing, has revealed behavioral and biological characteristics that increase risks of addiction. Bolkow and Boyle state both the excess we see, death, overdose, accidents, health consequences, cost, and state, quote, while research has identified many evidence-based preventions and treatment strategies that could help reduce alcohol use and drug use and their consequences, these interventions are highly underutilized and not effective for everyone. Our deepening understanding of the neurobiological, genetic, epigenetic, and environmental mechanisms underlying addiction is helping researchers identify new targets for prevention and treatment interventions. Essentially, neuroscience is uniquely suited to being able to address something so complex and impactful. We've been Mm. seeing the results of addiction for a long time, and it's still not really talked about. Generally, most chronic homeless individuals are suffering from a combination of severe mental illness and chemical dependency, and treatment, therapy, everything we've used so far, often really struggles with lasting results. We just agreed 10 years ago that this might be more than somebody's quote bad choices. In fact, it's likely a brain reaction. Why neuroscience? Because once we could admit that it was the brain instead of the mind, it was the most sensible place to go. Whoa, once we agree that it was the
1: brain and not the
0: mind-hmm
1: oh I'm gonna sit on that for a little bit. We'll take a quick break and then we'll come back and dive into the brain stuff. because yeah, sometimes it's not the mind. sometimes it's not your choice. Mm. yeah. So starting to look at the parts of the brain that are involved with addiction, maybe a highlight on chemical dependency, but I can only imagine where we're headed with addiction in general, that there's going to be a lot of parts of the brain involved, but I'm wondering if there's also different parts based on the type of addiction. No. There isn't. No, that's actually one of the bigger things we're about to uncover. Oh, Oh my gosh, let us dive
0: right in. So Dr. Eric Nessler states, a lot of this is focused on the mesolimbic reward center. So in our brain, we have pleasure slash reward pathways. It's called your mesolimbic system. So you've got dopamine neurons. We've discussed dopamines quite a few times, right? Mm -hmm. And they're located in the ventral tagmental area. So hand model the brain that's the most outside part of your thumb that is touching your palm. Okay. Barely midbrain. Yeah. Yeah. Right there. And so your center of your palm is the basal ganglia. And your basal ganglia's focus can essentially be summed up by the real-to-real song made popular in the movie Madagascar, I like to move it, move it. (laughs) That's your basal ganglia. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Basically reward when you move. It also activates your prefrontal cortex, we've discussed that a lot, and your limbic system, amygdala, hippocampus, hypothalamus, thalamus, basal ganglia, Cingulate gyrus, all of those hanging out together, right? We limbic system is is that gang. Yes, our sweet dear friends. Yep. So Nestler states that these areas and their normal processes are kidnapped. They're stolen. They're hijacked. He states that we have growing evidence that things, things, so food, drug, sex, gambling, etc., can take over our natural pathways and hypo focus them into one reward center. So natural addictions may also specifically focus on your nucleus accumbens in overcompensation of what they call natural rewards and state that the results of recent studies could show that this activation, quote, may mediate not only key aspects of drug addiction, but also aspects of so-called natural addictions involving compulsive consummation of natural rewards. So is this saying essentially that too much good can really be a bad thing? Yes. Wow. Too much of one good can really be a bad thing. Ooh. We'll get into that at about the end of this episode, and that is we have a really big takeaway for this episode. Excellent. So Coob, Santa, and Bloom also argue this, stating, quote, specific parts of the nucleus acumens and amygdala may underline drug rewards and motivational effects associated with dependence, and also state that the mesolimbic system is impacted by this. They're saying, basically, yep, all of that, Agreed. Fowler et al. states, quote, studies of addicts shown reduced cellular activity in the orbital frontal cortex. That's an area really that we're relying on to make strategic decisions, not impulsive or damaging decisions potentially. Right. And says, quote, patients with traumatic injuries to this area of the brain display problems, aggression, poor judgment of future consequences, inability to inhibit appropriate response that are similar to those observed in substance abusers. So in the moment, you consume something that's super positive. It stimulates your dopamine that's hanging out specifically in the mesolimbic system. Yeah. Your dopamine starts sending you DMs about how good this feels and like how amazing this is and why don't we always feel this good? We should consume more. We should be feeling even better. Your nucleus acumens and dorsal striatum get those DMs and they're like, hey, you're pretty awesome, friend. We should hang out a lot more. And you know what? I got access to the boss's calendar. I can totally make this happen. So you hang out. But dopamine, for whatever reason, isn't as friendly. And it takes a lot more focused attention to get those DMs coming in to feel that good again. Mm. The substance. plain hard to get. Exactly. <laughs> no. But your substance gram is still pretty sexy, though. So you want more. You keep going on to Instagram and you still get some of those DM slides even just by being on their page, making you want even more. Every time you do it, you create both a pathway in the brain. Think of that snowy field that you're walking in, right? Mm -hmm. You're walking that path over and over and over again. Every time you go hang out with that particular thing, because that dopamine's sliding in, and you're eroding away the dirt and soil underneath it. You're literally changing the field you're walking in. It changes so much that your natural reactions are starting to erode. Holy crap. Yeah, not really a behavioral choice, huh? Clearly, my goodness. It starts out as one, but it becomes way bigger than that. So Hilton and Watt state, quote, all addictions create, in addition to chemical changes in the brain, anatomical and pathological changes which result in various manifestations of cerebral dysfunction, collectively labeled hypofrontal syndromes. In syndromes, the underlying deficit reduced to its simple description is damaging the breaking system of the brain. You have changed the field you are walking in. And specifically, what you do is you remove your break. You remove the ability to stop. Hence, usage to addiction. Vocal and Boyle state, quote, in a brain not affected by addiction, the circuits controlling desire for a drug are held in check by prefrontal cortical regions that underlie executive functions, which support making rational, healthy decisions that regulate emotions. Thus, the awareness that a drug will provide an immediate reward is balanced by consideration of long-term goals. And the individual is able to make a reasonable choice, and carry through. Mm-hmm. However, when the prefrontal cortical circuits underlying executive function are hypofunctional as a result of repeated drug exposure or from an underlying vulnerability, the limbic circuits underlying conditional responses and stress reactivity are hyperactive as a result of drug withdrawal and long-term neuroadaptations that down-regulate sensitivity to non-drug reward. The addicted individual at a tremendous disadvantage in opposing to the strong motivation for the drug. So what am I saying there? It makes everything else not feel as good. Exactly. It's why it's so hard to stop. Your brain has literally been rewired. Wow neuroplasticity is a thing right that's what I was thinking about too
1: and of course it's where my brain always goes when we talk about malleability and changing the pathways in your brain and that kind of stuff I'm wondering too what is it about the chemical that's taken or maybe this like addictive process that makes that malleability or that change happen so quickly Because I feel like when you try to build a habit or when you try to like change your brain through meditation or mindfulness or something like that. It takes forever. It takes forever. And Mm -hmm. it's sometimes it's so hard and it's it's almost like your brain Mm -hmm. doesn't enjoy it as much. Exactly. But so what is it about the chemical or that addictive property that makes it so easy?
0: Your brain enjoys it more. You literally hit it right there. Oh, crap. Your brain is wired for pleasure. That's how it essentially gets you to do anything. It motivates you. It says, hey, this feels good. Go do the thing, right? Do the thing to get the thing. That's a thing. That's dopamine. Yeah. Your brain literally has a focus of, I need you to get off your butt and go find food or we die, right? Right. Food tastes super good. Food tastes amazing. Why aren't we eating more food? You have to be set up this way. Yeah. So... The amount of pleasure you seek out in a day for any one of us is not an option. You can't actually live a life without pleasure. You'll find it some way. And it's not just chemicals that you'll find it for. You'll find it however you need to. In fact, your brain has multiple pathways to pleasure. The question is how you're getting that pleasure and how easily accessible it is. Which is why neuroscience will say, It's great that the DSM is only really recognizing these specific categorizations of substances, but that isn't the only thing that's addictive. So Hilton and Watts state in 2006, a VBM study was published looking specifically at obesity and the results were very similar to cocaine and methamphetamine. The obesity study demonstrated multiple areas of volume loss, particularly in the frontal areas associated with judgment and control, removing that break. Right? Mm -hmm. It's pleasurable. I just want to keep doing it. I do it so often. My brain says, I don't need this break anymore. Why would I need this break? Let's just keep doing the good thing. Hilton and Watts also looked at addictive sexuality. And a 2007 study saw, quote, almost identical findings to cocaine and methamphetamine and obesity studies. It concludes that the first time a sexual compulsion can become physical anatomical changes occur in the brain, the hallmark of brain addiction. Preliminary study showed frontal dysfunction specifically in patients unable to control their sexual behavior. The study used diffusion MRI to evaluate the function of nerve transmissions through white matter. It demonstrated the abnormality in the superior frontal region, an area associated with compulsivity. Holy crap. What did all of that mean? Sex, food, cocaine, meth, all looks kind of the same in the brain. Your brain says, ooh, this is good. I like the good thing. I need to keep doing the good thing. I am going to move forward on that good thing, right? So wow. it specifically is showing on an MRI on some of the, these brain scans that we've changed, we've rewired the brain and specifically looking at that compulsive behavior without the break. So I want to say instead of body or behavior, wanted to focus on why this happened. It is looked at as complex interactions between biological factors, genetics, epigenetics, developmental attitudes, neural circuitry, and environmental factors. Specifically to quote Volcro and Boyle, research has started to uncover how psychological traits, emotions, and behaviors are encoded in the brain. We've been covering some of that encoding in our mini episode. How environmental factors influence brain circuits and subsequent behavior, and how genetic and epigenetic factors influence the development and functioning of the brain, all of which are relevant to addiction and resilience. It's never nurture or nature. It's always both. Genetics can impact specifically how you metabolize something. We've been covering that since the beginning of this podcast. Mm-hmm. And epigenetics can impact the focus of your neural pathways through generations. High levels of stress rewires your brain, right? Mm-hmm. So we covered in... in Empathy about how if you're living in a stressful environment, you are more likely to have an increase of drug and alcohol addiction, to increase obesity, increase teen pregnancy. All of this. (laughs) So it's the key piece of neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is not good or bad. It just is. What fires together, wires together. The focus you give to something will and can rewire your brain. And also, this is why age matters. So vocal and Boyle will remind us that the brain is still actively developing until the mid-20s, right? Mm-hmm. When your brain is developing, it is actually more plastic. It still has plasticity till death, but increases as you're growing. In fact, there are actually periods of development which we've discovered when we were talking about music, for example, or language where you have increased amount of plasticity, right? Right. So you have a higher amount of that when your brain's in active development. And so specifically until the mid-20s, the last thing that grows in impacts your rewards and motivation. Yeah. So they state, quote, as a result during adolescence, the stradial reward motivation and limbic emotional circuits are hyperactive, leading to a greater emotional reactivity and reward seeking behaviors. Moreover, the prefrontal cortex cannot fully self-regulate. I'm going to repeat that again. Moreover, the prefrontal cortex cannot fully self-regulate up until your mid-twenties, leading to more impulsivity and risk-taking. Early exposure to drugs of abuse may further impair the development of the prefrontal cortex, increasing long risk for addiction. So if we start doing something young, it feels good. We're already super plastic. We already don't have that ability to say, hey, maybe I should stop right now and think of the long-term future. You can see where all of this is going. (laughs) And a big part of what we also need to look at is why a person started engaging this in the first place. This is what I was hinting at in the very beginning of this episode, a big piece that we're starting to look at with chemical dependency. And I will repeat starting, right? Because it's only in the last like 10 years we realized it wasn't just a behavioral problem. Mm-hmm. We have to look at the why. Volko and Boyle are stating we have to recognize the, co- the comorbidity. What is going on at the same time of addiction? Quote, Many overlapping brain regions and circuits, including those mediate, reward, executive function, and emotion, and neurotransmitter systems, including dopamine, serotonin, glutamate, GABA, norepinephrine, have all been implicated in substance use disorders and other mental illnesses. All parts of the brain we have talked about haven't gone into detail. I didn't need to. We've discussed them all season. Yes. All of these parts of the brain, right? Mm Mm-hmm. In fact, there's a pretty solid crossover if you look back to our first two episodes this season depression and anxiety exactly dr bruce perry has also explored this in multiple books we've covered quite a few of them specifically when we were covering empathy understanding how our stress can impact our dna can change our dna and the dna of our children so it's harder to regulate how parents treat their children will literally affect their dna and how that gets transcribed, and thus what happens in a baby's brain or body. This is impacting not only the reward system, but how we make sense of the world. Hence, why children with high ACEs, if you remember from our second episode of the season, Mm -hmm. children with high ACEs are more likely to take drugs, get addicted, more likely to use Ritalin, more likely to have high rates of teen pregnancy, more likely to have high rates of obesity, how we feel about ourselves, he states, a very high percentage of users are individuals who had developmental adversities because addiction is a form of self-regulation why is this so prevalent why is this so easy for us to change our brain because it feels good just what you said neuroplasticity is absolutely feasible for echolocation and becoming a bad mm-hmm. but it's harder this is easier because it's self-regulation and we have to self-regulate is a key piece of us continuing to survive. It's literally taking the system off warp 10, right? Mm-hmm. Addiction can be a self-regulation. It can soothe that stress response system and make us feel good. It helps us dissociate. So to really understand addiction, we have to figure out why we need to disassociate in the first place. To literally quote us. What we stated in season one, episodes two and three, quote, having four or more ACEs increases the odds of being a current smoker by 220%. Increases the odds of ever using legal drugs by 470%. The chances of becoming an alcoholic go by 740%. And the chances of injecting drugs by a whopping 1,030%. And Perry stated, quote, people at the CDC doing this work told me those numbers were the numbers of magnitude which epidemiologists might see once in a career. I think it's important when we're talking about addiction is we have to figure out why that's happening in the first place if we ever want to figure out what to do about it.
1: With that, I I can't even believe we're not even at the takeaways yet. Understanding why addiction occurs I feel like is a great first place to start and I can only imagine what we'll learn next after a quick break. Entering into this final portion of the podcast, we were just talking about why addiction starts in the first place Mm -hmm. and Now, having learned all that, what do we do? How do we take control back? How do we rewire a brain that has been so heavily wired, its foundation has been destroyed?
0: I want to start this by saying I've got takeaways and they're super important. In fact, they're maybe some of the most important takeaways we've had all season. But I also need to state very clear, I am in no way an expert in addiction at all. I have a background of over 10 years in mental health. Yes, not focused in chemical addiction, and there are people who specialize in this. But I'm simply sharing a lot of research here. But what the research, specifically neuroscience research, is saying is exactly that. We need to rewire a brain. We need to use neuroplasticity consciously as opposed to unconsciously. And we know that's not easy and it's not quick. How do we do that? A lot of mental health professionals in consultation will state there's, a, there's an importance or a focus on the need for a person to identify that there's a problem. Makes it easier to rewire a brain if you know it needs rewiring. That's legit. Yeah, awareness is always that first step. Yeah. And there needs to be a connection between X behavior is causing Y response that makes you feel good, but also Z impact on your life and the lives of others, right? Mm -hmm. So they will I want to give credence to what is a large field within mental health, right? There are people who specialize in this. They will often state that that's important. I will also state what we've discussed on the podcast, rewires the brain, which is mindfulness again that's probably where buy-in can be helpful but important to remember when in doubt mindfulness is good at rewiring your brain Mm -hmm. additional chemicals can also rewire your brain (laughs) it's legit i mean this is where it all started right and we are looking to some of that the same way that we look to prozac when somebody is anxious not as like necessarily always a long-term result Mm. but can i help you kind of boost your rewiring prozac right we sometimes use it or an ssri snri We'll use them to, to decrease the anxiety so that we can do the good work to rewire the brain. Right. In chemical addiction, we're talking about the possibility of being able to use that as well. And there's a lot coming out in the field, uh, specifically on the use of psychotropics um, to potentially help us kind of boost that neuroplasticity. Mm. We may need an entire mini episode on psychotropic medication and neuroplasticity.
1: Uh, definitely. Sounds like it. And random question too is
0: ketamine a part of that yes yes it is very interesting so when we so when we look at mental health in anything right we often I often describe it because I'm a very visual person as a table it has multiple legs the more legs you have the more stable the table right Mm -hmm. therapy can be one of those legs medication can be one of those legs and so can be the other things you fill your life with self-care community care mindfulness giving back those are all choices we have to make literally every single day, day in, day out, right? You remove one of those legs, your table becomes a little less steady. So you have to thicken how much your, how thick your table legs are, right? Yeah. This is one of the reasons that c- addiction is so complicated. Person doing X thing, X thing feels great. Why would you wanna change that? Why would you wanna take away the thing that makes me feel good? To really get at the heart of this is not just talking about necessarily like any other mental health diagnosis. It is also talking about the heart of feeling good. Whoa. Dr. Bruce Perry will state there are so many ways to, quote, activate the brain's neural network of reward that there are multiple routes to pleasure. There are multiple things that activate your nucleus accumbens and your ventral tagmental area. And specifically, he looks at alcohol, drugs of abuse, sweet, salty, fatty foods, sex, self-harm. Self-harm is chemical addiction, cutting, picking, and pulling. Self-harm is chemical addiction. It's not something we went into a great deal on this episode. I do want to make that point. Self-harm is chemical addiction. You can actually overdose on self-harm because it's releasing so much chemicals in your system you can overdose. But those aren't the only routes to those pleasure centers. Additional routes are music, rhythmic activity, as we discussed in the neuroscience of music, right? Mm-hmm. People who were more likely to engage in music were likely to decrease their substance addiction. This is why. Additionally, behavioral consistent with a value or belief system. Engaging in a way you believe in. We also describe that in the neuroscience of empathy, how good it feels to do good, right? The sense of pleasure and safety is one of them. The release of hormones and a calmer regulation of the stress response neural system. Decrease of psychological distress and positive human interaction. So I wanna repeat that because this is gonna be really important. To get to your nucleus acumens and your ventral tegmental area, alcohol, drugs, specific types of food, sex, self-harm, music rhythmic movement, behavior consistent with value, a sensation of pleasure and safety, a release of hormones slash calmer responses to your stress response, decrease of physical distress, positive human interactions. This is key. He states, as humans, we have something of a reward bucket. We kind of been showing that in this episode. We will go to the pleasure thing because it feels good. Pleasure is not a choice. We will do things that feel good. Anybody wants to disagree with that, I will push you back to that list again. If you think pleasure is not a choice, go back to that list. You can live a life without pleasure, but you're probably living a lot in your moral value doing things that you believe in, or you're getting a lot of positive human interaction pleasure is choice but we need to broaden what we think of as pleasure mm-hmm. pleasure can be i just feel safe and calm right yeah that is not a choice we need to do these things but there are multiple ways we can get there we have this reward bucket we have a drive to fill this do the thing to get the thing and every single day every single person has to refill your reward bucket this is why when we covered an empathy that if you engage in music and dancing, chemical dependency will decrease. You're filling your bucket. You're just filling your bucket with something different. We all need to feel good. Until we address that need, we are not going to stop the pull that is happening. We have to be able to say, I hear your brain. You need a thing. How do we get this somewhere else? This is why understanding that it's a brain thing and not a personal failing is huge. And we struggle with that. Remember from the neuroscience of empathy, when Dr. Fal- Eddie presented his research on the fact that over 50% of obese individuals were sexually abused as children. And instead of excitement, he was attacked and dismissed. And quote, one audience member even stood up and claimed that patients were merely making up stories to cover up their further failed lives. Why neuroscience? Because it's so much easier to just blame the person. But Perry will argue it's about what happened to you and how that changes your brain. He states, quote, people who have developmental trauma or adversity feel anxious all the time and it's such a common part of their life, they don't even realize they're anxious. I've worked with those individuals, right? I've worked with individuals where I teach them how to calm down, but I have to teach them that calm is okay because when I first teach calm, it can be so activating, so scary to feel calm, to turn off that stress response system, right? Like turning off your alarm in a high crime neighborhood. You're like, no, 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 no. I need this. I need this, or something bad's gonna happen. Mm-hmm. This happens. He says, quote, people may not identify that they're anxious at all. This, this is things I've worked with. People will come in and say, I'm not anxious. I just I have the stomach aches all the time and I can't sleep and I just feel irritable, which is anxious, right? And we age and someone introduces us to something like alcohol. And we feel calm for the first time, maybe ever. So let's take two people. Person A had loving, engaged parents. They were well-resourced, enough food, enough sleep, enough time. Person A had a huge group of friends that was positive. They got taught how to do positive interactions early. They know how to reciprocate. They get positive interaction all the time between family and friends. They were shown positive human action, so they're great at making friends, right? They were encouraged to go out for band, join sports or a dance team. Maybe as an adult, they still play music. They still dance. Maybe they have a rec league. They find things that have value to them, like volunteering, giving back. They feel safe a lot of the time. They've been able to find a job that is positively rewarding to them. They have stress, because we all have stress, but stress that is good stress, that feels manageable, that they can tackle it knowing they've got people behind them to support them. Now take person B. Person B did not have resource parents. Their parents were stressed all the time and trying to make ends meet and cranky and not a regulatory partner. They did not have enough food. They did not have enough sleep. They couldn't, barely keeping their heads above water. Making friends was hard because their base environment was so stressful they were not regulated. And they got anxious and angry very easily. They didn't have a lot of positive interactions with people. They got yelled at a lot. They were told that they were doing poorly. They didn't have the resources to be able to pay for band or dance or sports teams. So they didn't get to learn those things because that costs money and now they feel too old to learn. They haven't been shown that people or things in life are positive. They feel everything is negative and terrible. Why would they volunteer or take care of others? They feel their stress is unmanageable because their system isn't helping them regulate it. They don't have people to support it and life has been chaotic. When life is uncontrollable, we just survive somehow. That's trauma. Even if it doesn't look like an earthquake or being beaten or harmed, trauma is a body response that is about survival, and survival is about getting through it, being numb. Both people have an unquestionable evolutionary drive to feel good. Our system will seek out pleasure. Both of them go to a party. What happens? Partaking in something. Think of us all during the pandemic. We are cut off from positive human interaction. Volunteering was more difficult. Finding a partner, if you didn't have one, was harder. Everything was changing. Everything was stressful. People were getting laid off. We didn't know what was going to happen. How many people stated they reached out to food, specifically sweet, salty, or fatty foods? How many of us increased what we were drinking? started using other chemicals? How many of us disassociated through constant scrolling or playing hours of video games? Perry will argue for anything to be sustainable, we have to look at those reward centers, the nucleus accumbens, the mesolimbic area, what we started with. We have to make sure that a person can activate them every day. There has to be enough to fill the bucket. Or we have an evolutionary need to fill it somehow. Mostly we need to understand this more. This is your brain. Your brain wants something and it's going to get it. The organ above all others, right? If it wants something, it's getting it. You will starve if your brain decides that you need something more. Treating it like a chosen behavior isn't going to get us anywhere. You can get pissed off at diabetes all you want. It's not going to help. And to be honest, the behaviors of addicts are harmful. They don't have that breaking system, right? It's like literal frontal damage. They will do harmful, hurtful things. I won't tell you not to take care of yourself. If you have somebody in your life, who's an addict, that's not going to help anybody, but we do have to look at this from multiple areas. A prevention matters a lot. Stop the rewiring before it starts. But prevention isn't just about, Hey kids, don't do drugs. We have to look about why it happens in the first place. Prevention isn't just about dare. It's about making sure that kids have access to band and music and dance and athletics and positive human interaction and, I don't know, maybe enough food to eat or maybe to make sure that their parents can pay their bills. It's about regulating the stress response system instead of putting them in test after test after test after test for no reason. We have to look at the need for human connection, for regulation, and for care if you want to do anything about prevention and have it actually impact anything. And we need to look at why it happens. We have to look at underlining causes, loneliness, trauma, anxiety, harm. We have to understand that each of us, every single human from birth to death, is trying to get their needs met with whatever tools they have at their disposal. Their needs are not going away. So we have to change the tools. Thanks for listening
1: to the Brain Blown Podcast. This podcast is created and produced by Lane and Sherris, with music by James Austin. To learn more about this episode, head over to brainblownpodcast.com for script notes, visuals, and any resources we mentioned. And hey, if you have any topics you're curious about or want to learn more on, we'd love to hear about it. Send us an email to info at brainblownpodcast.com or reach out via social media to connect.